This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Sharon, Eric Lopez, and Brian Murphy. Welcome, 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 Jeff, Brian, and Eric with you here on this Wednesday night as the month of October dwindles down. It's going to start getting cooler. We got a cold front coming this weekend. Eric Burris was right. Much to, much to your chagrin, I'm sure, Eric Lopez, because you hate weather people. I think I, I prefer Danny Medina, our colleague here at Black and Gold Ben Rick, got it right. She's always right. I think Eric Burris steals her material, personally. Well, all I know is that Danny's busy covering the hurricane that's, that's hitting New Orleans. And we're thinking about our friends from Fear the Wave and all the folks up in New Orleans tonight who are dealing with another one of these storms. So keep them in, uh, keep them in your thoughts. In the meantime, but you know, we're going to try and talk about a little bit more football here. Lots to talk about, actually, on this episode. Not just football, but basketball, gentlemen. Oh, my God. Basketball season is all of a sudden right around the corner. We are, what, one, exactly one month away, right? 31 days from the UCF men's basketball opener. Fingers crossed, right, Murph? Fingers crossed. We, that's correct. Against Oklahoma. Yep, in, at home. Uh, financial on, on November 28th. Yep, so we'll be talking about that a little bit later. But we will uh, We will also preview, of course, we're going to talk about football. We're previewing the Houston game. Um, and uh, joining us a little bit later, Sam Rassenfoss and uh, Dustin Rensink from uh, the Scott and Holman podcast, P-A-W-D-C-A-S-T, uh, talking about Houston. Good friends from way back when we even started our podcast. So uh, lots to talk. So we break down Houston with them. But first, let's kind of just put a bow on UCF's victory over the Tulane Green Wave, 51 to 34 uh, on uh, last Saturday. It's, it's winning is the great deodorant, isn't it? You come in, you get you get your first conference win. You're now three and two overall. And I know that, you know, there's an infinitesimally small chance that UCF can get back into the conference race at this point, but still lots to play for which bowl game you're going to go to. Can you finish off with a decent record that can set you up for next year? Um, and I thought what was key in that second quarter was the, uh, believe it or not, I thought that the defense really sparked the offense um, on four consecutive plays from scrimmage. UCF got four sacks on Tulane at one point in the second half and I thought, or the second quarter rather. And that was key to their, uh, 27 nothing outburst in uh, that quarter prior to halftime when they were down 14-10 at the end of one. Um, and we saw all kinds of weird stuff. We saw an eight-and-a-half-minute-long game-ending drive by UCF. Really? Um, it was... Uh, I never thought we'd ever see that. We saw a bad beat of for all time, by the way, didn't we, Eric Lopez? Well, not really. I mean, it didn't make Scott Van Pelt's bad beats. So How did me. it not make Scott Van Pelt's bad beats? I, don't, I give credit to Murph. He didn't. He predicted it wouldn't, right? Murph, you didn't think. I mean, be, it, partly because I guess the result was kind of justified, right? I, no, I, I don't remember ever making any proclamation that it would or would not be on there. I thought, it, I thought it would be. I mean, you have. I mean, for those of you who who remember, the over under for this game was uh, seventy or seventy two. Yeah, and and UCF. Uh, or, or excuse me, the spread, the spread, excuse yeah, me. The yeah, spread the spread was, was 21. Uh huh. was 22. You have up by 17. They have the ball on the one yard line at the end of this eight minute drive. And on second and goal at the one, they take a knee to end the game. M- mind you, uh-huh. they had first and goal at the two and ran it up the middle with Otis Anderson. Didn't, oh. t- didn't take the knee. 
on first and on first and goal at the two, and then Gabriel does take the knee on second goal at the one. And then if you and then if so if you had UCF to cover, uh, that went out the window. I. You know, it happens. That's you know those. Well, those I mean, up and downs. It is. It's it's neither here or there at this point. But I was, I just I can't believe Van Pelt didn't have that on there. But nonetheless, let's talk about the actual football here. Uh, Dylan Gabriel was outstanding um, once again for UCF. Twenty six of forty for four twenty two, five touchdowns. That's a career high, isn't it? It. He threw. Uh, he didn't he throw five like just. Last week, that's right. Before he, that, well, so it ties his career. Right. Yeah, games, yeah. So ten touchdowns the last two games, over a thousand yards passing the last two games for Dylan Gabriel. Greg McRae, this is Greg McRae had the quietest twenty-five carry, hundred sixty-two yard game I've ever seen. Uh, believe it or not, that was the first time this season a UCF a UCF player has rushed for one hundred yards, uh, forty plus yards for uh, each of Otis Anderson and Bentavious Thompson. Marlon Williams continues to light the world on fire. Nine catches, 174 yards, three touchdowns, including what I thought was the backbreaker on that fourth and 12 play in the third quarter that pretty much ended the game. Um, Jacob Harris had two big catches, 96 yards and one touchdown. Uh, and Jake Hescott got into the uh, got into the act as well. He had a touchdown catch. Richie Grant led UCF in tackles with 11 uh, two sacks each for Randy Charlton and Kenny Tournier. Uh, it was uh, it, it was uh, overall, I thought, a pretty solid performance. And what I really liked about it, and I said, and I said this afterwards um, in the uh, in the the uh, was it the ten thoughts that I had afterwards was I loved how UCF just kind of stepped on their throat. You know, I, I I felt like it was like like we'd been missing that for a little bit, but in the second half, now granted they have a little bit of he- they had a little bit of help with the field position because Tulane tried three onside kicks all of them were unsuccessful but you know to 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 slam the door on them like they did in the third quarter I think that was nice to see um and you know hey a win is a win is a win I'll take it any any way we can get it 51-34 uh Murph what'd you think of it coming out this is the best performance uh by the team all year uh and I don't think that's arguable uh considering what we saw from the offense which I mean, yes, they, they, they put up 700 yards of offense against Memphis, and yet somehow they almost did it again against Tulane mm-hmm. while basically taking the fourth quarter off, like just kind of slowing the pace down and just sort of running uh, like very old-school offense. Yeah. Six, put, six, sorry to interrupt, 689 yeah. yards on 99 total plays. And it just seemed like, wow, that was a very sort of nonchalant way to get to 690 yards. Like, <laughs> it was just so easy. Uh, and, and they did it, you know, they could do everything, anything they wanted a- against that defense, which, you know, credit to UCF again. They, you know, came, Tulane, Tulane came out with a three man front, dropping eight. And UCF not prepared for that. And UCF has, has had this happen to them multiple times already this season where teams come out in different fronts and different structures defensively that UCF hasn't seen on tape. And I think Dylan Gabriel said it took about two series for UCF to really understand what they were going to do to that attack. And then after a while, you just saw guys like Marlon Williams just find zones. When you drop eight, there's going to be areas open uh, where, you know, you can get underneath and, and find zones. And they did that, and then they ran them, and then they, obviously they ran the ball. This is why they ran the ball a lot in this game, because 
they're only facing a three-man front. So make a couple blocks and uh, had the threat of the pass going, but that's why or that's why Gray McCray was so successful in this game. And then defensively, yes, we can nitpick things. Uh, not nitpick. There were still struggles here. I mean, the first drive of the game that Tulane had uh, in which they scored a touchdown, uh, it was it was ugly. It was an ugly, ugly uh, play on the defensive end for UCF in which uh, Eric Mitchell was apparently in coverage against Deuce Watts and looked completely lost, sort of just flailing at air. Uh, and Antoine Collier then comes up and completely whiffs on Watts as well. It was really ugly. And then from there, I thought the, the, the defense was really solid. You wanted to see more of those negative plays, which is what these coaches have been pining for for weeks. And you saw that with 11 tackles for loss, which they'd only had, uh, I think, eight was their season high coming in. The five sacks almost matched their season high regardless. They only had six coming into this game. They had five in against Tulane. Granted, it was against a very banged-up Tulane offensive line. They were starting two new guys. Uh, it's it's not a very good old line. They'll face a tougher challenge this week against Houston. Um, but at least they at least they at least you saw it. So between mm-hmm. that, at least offensively and defensively, it was great. Special teams, you can talk about the, the onside kick recoveries, three clean onside kick recoveries with no personal fouls this time. Wow. Right. And, and, you know, obviously we could talk about Obarski missing two more kicks. I don't think that is a concern yet until he misses maybe a few more. People are going to be wanting blood because he's missed a few kicks. Uh, they should understand that UCF's only other option in the kicking game right now is probably walk on true freshman Riley Stevens. Uh, so they're not going to make that move yet. And I don't think it's I think it's going to take another bad game or two from Obarski to have them to even think about it. Other than that, this game was perfect for UCF, as about as perfect as UCF can be. Um, so it's encouraging. If we had talked about, you know, UCF's halfway through the season, what do we think? If we talked about that last week after their fourth game, we would obviously have a different different manner to this conversation. Now to their fifth game, everything seems hunky dory, but there's a big step up in class this week against UCF. Yeah. They could probably put Alan Curvin out there too. Come to think of it, I mean, he was a he was a place kicker and punter when he was at East Lake. And uh, the reason why I bring that up is because I'm a nerd about kickers. But anyway, uh, Lopez, you always talk about um, uh, the the situation up front, and UCF certainly won that battle, right? I mean, when you have when you run almost a hundred plays, and sixty percent of them are runs, uh, you're winning the line of scrimmage, aren't you? Absolutely. And, you know, we discussed it last week's episode and I even mentioned it on the uh, on our preview that we run out every week where we do the the roundtable. Tulane going into that game was a top 10 in the country and running the football. They averaged about 230 yards a game on five yards of carry. They got two talented backs and UCF defensively held them about 100 yards below that at about a three yards a pop. Yep. And I thought they did a great job in really forced Tulane to throw the football. And actually, in a weird way, when Tulane scored early on the throwing the, the football with Pratt, I actually thought that worked out to UCF's favor because I think Tulane kind of got a little bit too pass happy there. The pass rush you mentioned, the five sacks, I mean, Murph and I talked about last week, they weren't getting any pressure on anybody until they stepped up there. Here's the thing. From a defensive standpoint, if they could play like that in the line of scrimmage, put some pressure on the quarterback, stop the run, and force teams to throw and force them into getting into a shootout when it comes to the passing game, UCF's going to be in good shape because there's nobody that right now is going to challenge UCF in the passing game in a shootout, the way Dylan Gabriel's playing and the way Marlon Williams is playing in the White House, which we'll get into in a second. So I think defensively that's a very positive step from the defensive line to get some pass rush and stopping the run. I thought they executed that very well in that regard and really set up 
you mentioned it. And Josh Hypo has now mentioned this multiple weeks. Complimentary football. They haven't been playing good complimentary football. And that's part of it is you don't have to be, you know, shut down, you know, every team and, you know, get off the field after every play at three downs. It'd be great. Which, although, which was another stat. They got off the field on third downs. UCF executed third downs offensive. They won that battle, too. But that's complimentary football. And with this offense, that's all you need. You just need to be good enough. You don't need to be great. And that's what they did. And I think they set up the offense. And then Dylan Gabriel. We have to mention Dylan Gabriel and Marlon Williams because they're playing at a very high level right now. Dylan Gabriel is number one in the country in passing yards, passing touchdowns. He hit another game of over 400 yards passing. You realize that game, and I tweeted this out at, at, during the game, he has already set the school record for most 400-yard passing games in a career. He's done it all this season, four games. Uh, the previous record was held by Ryan Schneider and Dante Culpepper. Uh, he is setting the bar very high. You know, we've had our lo- listeners, J.P. Gilbert, Sam Ungers, tweeted at us about what do you think about Dylan Gabriel? Where does he re- stack up? I don't want to get into the where does he stack up all-time list. And, and and they asked about the draft prospects, and that's been some chatter. I think that's a year away. But he is definitely climbing up that ladder to the point where, yeah, I think there will be conversations down the road. That, yeah, Dylan Gabriel is, could be an NFL prospect uh, a year from now that we'll have that discussion. And I think he could have a chance to have a lot of the significant uh, passing records by the time his time is done here at UCF. But Again, shout, a, a tremendous job. But a shout-out to Marlon Williams. 54 receptions, 753 yards, leads the nation in both categories. Even though they're pl- he's on pace to break the school record for most receptions in a season, which is held by Mike Sims-Walker at 90. He did that in 12 games, Mike Sims-Walker. Right now, Marlon's on pace to break the record in nine games. Yep, He's also on, on, on pace to break the record – of receiving yards, which was broken. It was held last year by Gabe Davis, broke the record last year, had over 1,200 yards. He's on on pace to break that record. If he keeps this up, we have to start pushing him for the Beliknikov Award, uh, which surprisingly, with all the great receivers we've had, I, I don't believe we've ever had a finalist even for the Beliknikov Award. Uh you know, and I and I get it. You know, people are going to point to the Power Five with that. They've won the last twenty Beliknikov awards. Uh, I think you got to go back to Troy Edwards in '98 for La Tech to win the uh, Beliknikov. But he should be strongly considered, and he has been. I've been amazed at how much he has stepped up. And I want to play this, Murph. You asked Josh Heupel about this. Marlon Williams stepping up, especially with the Trey Nixon injury. <laughs> You know, once you lost Trey, uh, that's a big part of your offense there in week one. For after that, and even though Marlon had a good game against Georgia Tech, but after that game, did you see Marlon maybe in the, in the week after with practice and, and weeks going forward, Marlon know that he had to take on more of, of the bulk role of, of getting more targets, more receptions? Did he, did he know that he had to step up even more with Trey out of the lineup? I think every game unfolds a little bit differently. I mean, there's matchups uh, that uh, that you're trying to attack as you go into a football game, and and uh, then you make adjustments during the course of play. <clears throat> I don't think Marlin has approached practice any differently. Um, you know, from the beginning of training camp uh, to after Trey getting getting injured. Um, did he feel like he maybe was going to get more targets uh, because of that? Maybe, but um, you know, I think he's just taking advantage and he's. 
he's played each play uh, really independent of itself. Uh, he's done a really good job, in my opinion, in that way growing. And, and uh, even when the ball's not coming to him as the primary target, um, he's continued to, to find the open zone. And, and all of a sudden, there's scramble drills or Dylan works through his progression, and, and he's been in the right spot at the right time. And I think that's just part of, of his growth uh, as a football player and understanding that every play matters. And uh, I got to do a great job when I'm the primary target or when I'm not. You know, he does a great job on perimeter screens, blocking. Uh, every role that we've asked him to, uh, to take this year, uh, he's accepted and, and, uh, and played really well in it. That was Josh Heupel there, Murph, responding to your question about Marlon Williams. But what do you, I mean, what do you guys think? I mean, to me, he is, what he has done has been phenomenal. And, and credit to him, he's waited his turn. You know, he, he's always had to play behind certain guys in this receiving depth over the last few years. But I've just been so impressed. You know, we've talked about the middle, you know, the, the middle game as far as throwing the ball in the middle. Who's going to be that? He's been that target in the middle. He's done. He's caught passes on the sideline in the middle. His routes have been tremendous. He has been phenomenal. And I hope he gets more love for Belichnikov. And Murph, you've you've mentioned, I think you've tweeted out, he he's in the mix for Belichnikov, correct? He and Jalen Williams were both added to the uh, Blitnikoff watch list two weeks ago. I remember when they announced the preseason uh, watch list for the Blitnikoff and Marlon, I think, tweeted out, like, the chin-scratching emoji. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, So I know that it maybe kind of irked him that he wasn't included to begin with, uh, but he's on there now, along with Jalen Robinson, and obviously they are deserving with yeah. the numbers they're putting up. I, I, yeah, I, the part that you brought up that I thought was amazing, Eric, was, you know, like you said, he's on pace to break these school records in nine games. The most games that UCF can play – assuming total chaos doesn't happen and UCF gets the conference championship game, is 10, right? So nine regular season games plus the bowl game. If he plays in 10 games, which, you know, who knows? If UCF gets to a bowl game, he well, may, and he listen, may declare. Let's be it's, well, in fairness, 2020, nothing's guaranteed. So. Right, right. We don't, we right. don't know what's going to happen with that, right. especially as we're starting to see bowl games actually go by the wayside. But if he plays, te- if he plays 10 games, he could very easily have 100 catches and 1,500 yards. Uh, which which would be all time records, obviously at UCF, and, and just tremendous. Uh, it would be in the it, it conversation. It would be in the he would be in the conversation among the greatest individual seasons that any UCF football players had. Right. I think Kevin Smith obviously is number one at the bar. I, I don't think you could top that. But after that, Dante in ninety eight is a pretty good one. Ninety eight, Milton twenty seventeen, obviously. Was great, but I mean, and and but as far as maybe a wide receiver, uh, who's had a better season than this? If he can continue this trend and, and this pace, I don't. I think you could. Or he can make the argument this could be the greatest season we've ever seen a UCF wide receiver ever have. Yeah. Well, Walker in what was it? Oh, oh six. Oh six. Yeah. When yeah. he had ninety catches that year. He had that ninety catches. Uh, a lot of that was because Brandon Marshall obviously left early, so he was the main guy. But the thing that nothing against that year, and I, I covered that year, he was tremendous. But that team went four and eight, so a lot of times they were trailing. Marlins doing this in all scenarios in mm-hmm. the game, like yeah. you mentioned earlier, Jeff. One of the big backbreaking catches there on that fourth down to touchdown to break the game open. I mean, he's making big plays after in every scenario. That's and and you know teams, you got to think right that teams are planning for him a little bit. Uh, and to me, that's the thing that's been so impressive. Despite that, he is still getting open and making plays. And, yeah, and, and and not to mention also his physical gifts as well. I mean, he's he's bigger than he looks, 
And he already looks pretty big. <laughs> he's like 6'1", 220 pounds, so physical. He's just, uh, he, I think, uh, Murph, correct me if I'm wrong, like they were thinking about maybe him being a running back when he first got here? Well, he could, he could definitely do that. I don't know if that was really going to be, that was probably not going to be his his you know position, but he can do that because he's a he's pretty thick for yeah. a guy of his size. He's not he's not a, he's not a big guy, uh, you know, like stature wise. But he's he is a broad shouldered kid, uh, and so that's what makes him really tough. I and mean, that's, that's what really can enable him to run over the middle of the field. Is he's got some speed, but he's tough as nails. Yeah, he's, he's tough as nails. He's hard. He's hard to tackle. I mean, I, I don't want to. Can we also bring up like just these three numbers about Dylan Gabriel? I know some of these numbers are a little old, but I just love the symmetry of this all. Okay. I'm gonna throw out three Dylan. Gabriel, I'm gonna throw out three Dylan Gabriel stats, and a couple of these are from the Memphis game. But I just love this. Dylan Gabriel in the Memphis game was the first QB to throw 600 yards and five touchdowns in a loss since Patrick Mahomes in 2016. Dylan Gabriel in the same game threw two 80-yard touchdowns. The first quarterback, the first FBS quarterback to throw two 80-yard touchdowns in a, in a single game since Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> and now. Dylan Gabriel has thrown for 2,178 yards through five games. The only quarterback to have more more passing yards in any college football season in the FBS level uh, was Patrick Mahomes after five games, and it's it's amazing. That, that is just crazy. The Mahomes well, guy. Why... The Mahomes guy. Whatever happened to him, by the way? I, I, heard, I, I heard. Right. I heard his dad was a good pitcher. Yeah. Or, uh, well, you would because you're a baseball guy. Thanks. Yeah. It was pretty good. I watched that pitcher play too. Um, but that's why. You know, you mentioned the Mahomes thing. That's why you've heard some chatter this week. I mean, I mentioned J.P. Gilbert, who's a long time, who's a loyal listener of the show here, and and Sam Unger. They've brought up the fact about his draft prospects and how good, you know, talent. Where can he rank up? I mean, some people, you know, what round? I do think he could be a pro prospect a year from now. He's not eligible this year, but I do think that chatter will pick up next year if he continues in this forward trajectory because he can throw the football. Is just so watching him throwing the football from the pocket and wherever is as beautiful as it gets. Mm-hmm. I don't think, guys, and you tell me, Jeff, you've I mean, maybe Culpepper and Schneider, those are the three. To me, those those two and Dylan, to me, are the three best pocket throwers I've ever seen at UCF. I think McKenzie was the best when it comes as far as out-of-the-pocket thrower. But as far as just standing in the pocket and hitting targets with accuracy and with depth, with, with every every throw you can make in the field, I think those three stand out, and Dylan could be as good as, a, if not better than those guys, by the time his career is done. Yeah, he's got he's got the kind of arm ca- arm talent that you can't teach, really. And and this is this is actually one of my favorite my favorite stat from Dylan, and we'll we'll go to break right after this. But uh, this is from ESPN Stats and Info. Dylan Gabriel is the third player in the last fifteen seasons with four hundred passing yards, five passing touchdowns, and no interceptions in consecutive games. The only mm. other two to do that. Jared Goff in 2015 and Joe Burrow in 2019. Burrow, of course, did it in the college football playoff. What do those two guys have in common? They both got taken number one overall in the NFL draft. So, Dylan Gabriel's yeah. size is not the impediment it used to be, right? He's six right. foot, 185. But small quarterbacks are not shied away from what they used to be. Uh, so that is not going to dramatically cost him draft stock. Yeah, and um, the other thing is that you know, the NFL understands just like colleges understand that they got to take what the colleges give them, just like colleges have to take what the high schools give them. And mm-hmm. some some genius offensive coordinator, I think, is going to take a look at him and be like, "I can work with this kid." And 
you know, we, we've already talked about how good his field vision is. He's just mobile enough to get downfield. I would like to see him work a little bit more in the pocket presence because I think sometimes he rolls to the wrong side when he knows that, you know, and then he kind of runs around in the pocket a little bit. But again, those are things that you can easily, that he can easily fix and easily correct. So I think the future is still bright for Dylan and what, you know, whatever we have here in these last four games, this is going to be fun to watch. Speaking of which, when we return, we will preview UCF against Houston uh, in, uh, well, <laughs> it doesn't have a rivalry name yet, right? But it should. We should call it the Star Wars, right? I think we talked about that. We'll talk about that with uh, Sam Rassenfoss and Dustin Rensing from the Scott and Holman podcast. We'll preview the game with Houston coming up uh, this week. And we'll also talk about how you can actually watch the game, uh, which will be on ESPN+. Plus. When we, when we return, this is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Stick around, I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon, Eric Lopez, Brian Murphy with you. UCF underscore Banneret on Twitter, Facebook.com slash Black and Gold Banneret. And of course, Black and Gold where we are SB Nation's home for UCF sports. Your UCF Knights will be taking on at three and two, will take on the Houston Cougars. In Houston on Halloween, Saturday, 2 p.m. in their next game, uh, fresh off that victory over uh, Tulane. We'll get to Dustin Rensink and uh, Sam Rassenfoss in just a little bit, but I just wanted to give a little bit of background uh, to the game for UCF uh, and Houston. The Knights actually lead the series 6-3. to three. Uh, And uh, and looking at actually the uh, the numbers that we all like to look at, guys, uh, UCF actually started as a three and a half point favorite, according to Odd Shark. That line has since dipped to 2.5. 63% of the money is on UCF. Here's what I think is fun, though. <laughs> Over under, gentlemen, 82 and a half. Woof. <laughs> yeah. Moved up a touchdown in the matter of days. That's, I've never seen that before. And where it's literally moved up a touchdown. A, and according to Odd Shark, 98% of the money is on the over. <laughs> on the mm. over 82.5. Yeah. Uh, this, this game might take about five and a half hours because these teams also Uh-oh. get penalized relatively. Although UCF, to their credit, this past week had only uh, four penalties for 20 yards. And one of them was for having two guys wearing number four on the field at the same time for one of the onside kicks, which I think was hilarious. But, um, and I think one of the, wasn't, wasn't one of the Murph two a false start on Dylan Gabriel? Uh, we had a couple of false starts that I think happened in the fourth quarter. So yeah. You can kind of pop the board too, because those, those were very in, like inconsequential. Right, right. But I think one of them was actually called, I think, on Dylan Gabriel. I'm not 100% sure. I don't know why they called it. Maybe a head bob or something. But anyway... Uh, yeah, two and a half is the line, and you know these are two teams that are averaging over thirty-seven and a half points a game. Houston uh, is coming in off of that uh, victory over Navy after the, after they really got it taken to them by BYU at home, and BYU is another thing entirely. But Houston really rebounded against Navy. Um, here's a number I wanted to get to you guys real quick. Uh, well, actually, you know what? I'll, we'll hold on to that. Let's talk about the Houston Cougars with our friends from the Scott and Holman podcast, Dustin Rensink. And Sam Rassenfoss. Dustin and Sam, welcome aboard. How are you guys doing? Hey, feeling pretty good. Good to be talking to you, Jeff. Yeah, always great to join you guys. All right, we've got, well, here we are again. UCF and Houston with, uh, with a game that's, uh, you, you know, it seems like, I feel like these teams have kind of just missed each other in terms of, you know, getting like the really big showdown between uh, uh, between them. And 
Um, you know, obviously with UCF coming in with two losses on the season, Houston right in the thick of things for the American, um, it's a little bit of a different feel than maybe we were hoping at the start of the season. But um, nonetheless, uh, you guys are at two and one, although you've had as many games postponed as played so far this year. Um, just how weird has this season been for Houston with all of the delays and the uh, and the cancellations due to COVID? Yeah, obviously, I think it's been a pretty bizarre season for everybody, but Houston seems to have gotten more than its fair share of that. Um, had as many as a theory, depending on how you want to count it, we've had five potential first games of the season uh, canceled uh, at one point or another, including getting two canceled for uh, essentially the same date. And I, I think the, the, the real kick in the pants, most Cougar fans would agree, more than anything else, was getting that Baylor game on the schedule um, and then getting all hyped up about, you know, facing an old Southwest Conference rival we hadn't, you know, seen since uh, since the 90s and getting a game that we were just, you know, incredibly excited to uh, to play. And then, and, and frankly, looking back on it now, that I, that I feel a game that I feel like Houston would have done very well and had a good chance to win. And then uh, less than 24 hours before kickoff to have a game canceled. Uh, I mean, just getting games canceled, you know, you felt like you'd kind of gotten numb to it. And it's like, OK, I'll believe that there's football when I see it but uh you kind of felt with less than 24 hours to go that you were actually going to get uh, going to get that game in and so that was obviously uh, a bit of a, a bit of a kick in the pants but you know we're three games in we've had three consecutive weeks where the games got played went off without a hitch uh, none of the cancellations have really been U of H's fault on any uh on any uh, level so uh you can't really get get you know frustrated with uh, anyone within inside of the program certainly um but yeah kind of settled in now three weeks uh, in a row got a game in with uh, with no issues so so hopefully we'll make that four and get a uh, good competitive game on Saturday. And Dustin yeah, right. kind of mentioned what I think was the most, I, I think, critical part, you know, that it's not coming from U of H having a COVID breakout on the team. And if you want to look at the bigger picture and, you know, what's what's really important in this life, I, I think we're very happy that the Cougar athletics and obviously more specifically Cougar football have been able to, you know, keep the virus, at least internally, from you know, affecting the ability of this team to play games and obviously keep all these guys healthy. Yeah, you know, I I I, I share your sentiment in that that it looks like you know for the most part teams across the American I think overall have done a pretty good job of keeping this thing uh, you know under uh, keeping this thing under control. I know that over here at UCF, you know, they've done a very solid job, uh, at least you know as far as we can tell. But you know, back to Houston for a minute. You guys are right now at two and one. Got the win over Tulane to start the season. Uh, on October the 8th was your opener. How about that? Um, the loss to BYU, but BYU is just is having themselves a year right now. Um, but you guys bounced back, I thought, really nicely in Annapolis with that win over Navy. I know Navy's kind of struggling right now. Um, they got bombed by BYU earlier this year, too. I don't know what's wrong with them. But um, what's the feeling about the team's play on the field right now? Um, it, through this very early portion of the season, are you guys where you expected to be? I would say that if you took the temperature of the fan base, I would say it's cautious optimism. I think the BYU game, you know, obviously BYU is a very good team. This is the best BYU team I think we've all seen in a very long time. But it's just, it's such a kick in the pants to know that you had them, you were up two scores on them. And then you know, gave up that 29 nothing run to end the game. As much as there were a lot of positive takeaways from that one, you know, I, I think this fan I, I think this fan base has certainly experienced enough to, you know, not be happy with a moral victory against BYU necessarily, but there were still positives from that one. And I would say if you're asking me and Dust, I think, I don't want to speak too much for my co-host, but 
you know, I think in some phases the team is a little bit ahead of where we thought. I think I don't think either of us would have expected uh, Houston to have an elite run defense. And, you know, before I think garbage time, Navy had under 100 yards rushing, which this is not a vintage Navy football team, but to hold the Naval Academy in any year under 100 yards rushing in meaningful game action is just it's it's the stuff of dreams when it's your defense. And I think we expected the run defense to be improved. There was a lot of experience coming back. You were adding the best player off last year's defense, Grant Stewart, who was moving from kind of his safety hybrid position to playing linebacker this year. But I think we would have thought we would have settled for slightly above average. And I think that probably would have been my prediction as opposed to, you know, completely shut BYU's run game down, completely shut Navy's run game down, completely shut Tulane's run game down. And that's to varying degrees, three teams that like to run the football and just Peyton Turner, I would say has been the guy maybe that came out of, I wouldn't say nowhere because he's been a multi-year starter, but Peyton Turner's really been the big breakout guy. He's finally harnessed that six, six, 260 pound, whatever frame into, you know, just being a terror of a pass rusher. And, you know, Clayton Toon, I think we all expected him to take, you know, a step forward in this offense. I think you saw promising things last year and what was kind of a lost season, but that he's thrown for over 300 yards in all three games this season has shown, you know, he's shown the touch. He's also shown the ability to stretch the field, which is something Dana Holgerson is always going to want to do with this offense. And the most pleasant surprise may be, you know, he's obviously not De'Aaron King in the run game because I think very, very few, if any, quarterbacks in the country are De'Aaron King, you know, in terms of being a running quarterback. But he's shown, I think, a really surprising ability to create stuff with his feet. I think once a game, he'll create something out of absolutely nothing and get a first down or a, you know, a big chunk gain out of it, you know, with his legs. If UCF doesn't respect his ability to run, you know, that will be something that, you know, happens on on Saturday. Just I think so maybe I, I would sum all that up to say slightly, you know, ahead of maybe where we thought the team was and cautiously optimistic about what we've seen through three games and albeit a very weird season. Go ahead, Murph. Guys, yeah, I think I think the one thing that stands out, obviously, when you watch just Houston's offense is Marquez Stevenson and it, just how electric he is. Watching the game against Navy, I mean, they line him up in the slot and he gets matched up on a safety and it's just a no contest. And then he gets a screen late in the game and it just, you know, he gets a block and that's great. But like just to watch him get around the corner and completely burn everybody else to really salt that game away. How much does Marquez really sort of uh, make this offense go? Even though he's a wide receiver, you got to get the ball into his hands, correct? Yeah, he's absolutely someone that uh, has to be involved in the offense. And you saw, you know, not that Houston didn't have any offensive success against BYU, but one of the things that kind of hamstrung them is that uh, BYU did a really good job of no matter where Marquez got lined up, they had, they found him and they they double teamed him on most play, most plays. They had him bracketed uh, more often than not. And uh, both Tulane and uh, Navy failed to do that nearly as successfully. And uh, and he made him pay because kind of, as you mentioned, you know, he, he can hurt you in a lot of different ways. If he gets the ball short, you know, if he gets if he gets a block and he gets any kind of any kind of hole, he's going to be a long gone. And certainly if he gets a, a favorable matchup, uh, the Cougars will look for him uh, on the deep ball as well. And even in special teams, he can hurt you. He's got he's had uh, multiple kick return uh, touchdowns, including one uh, against Tulane already this year. So uh, if UCF, you know, if any one kick basically any kickoff this year for U of H that isn't uh, into the end zone 
uh, you're going to be holding your breath because because uh, Marquez Stevenson can certainly certainly uh, hurt you in the return game as well. So I, I think one of the really positive developments has been seeing um, some other guys step up in uh, in the receiving game as well. Keith Corbin has been a big part of that. Someone that was one of the many guys that took a red shirt last year um, and ended up coming back, and he's looked really good so far. He's a big you know big physical athletic receiver who's, uh, whose biggest issue has been kind of some inconsistent hands, but through three games, he's looked really good, uh, really sure-handed. Uh, Trayvon Bradley as well, another guy that's uh, been able to catch some passes, make some things happen. So, I mean, the good news is, is that Marquez Stevenson is not the uh, the only receiver that, uh, that Clayton is going to look for, but uh, certainly he has an unparalleled ability to uh, to make something out of nothing and to just make some big plays uh, appear seemingly out of nowhere. And that's not a, a knock on anyone else's playmaking ability on uh, the Houston receiving roster. Like I said, certainly some other guys that can make a play. Uh, Tank Dell, uh, a Juco guy that really feels like he's about to break out and have a, a huge game any day now. Um, but uh, Marquez Stevenson, you imagine, has to be uh, the first guy that uh, the defensive coordinator is going to worry about every team that Houston uh, faces this year. What about- and I guess- oh, oh, sorry, go Brian, ahead, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, you go ahead, Jeff. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, what about just the offense in general here on year two under Dana Holgerson? Has he now cemented his system in Houston? And how has it been different from or has it been two expectations or how have things been different from previous regimes in terms of just how things operate for the Houston program right now? I think to the per- first part of your question, yes. Um, just something that was very apparent by about the second, third quarter against Tulane was just the offense. There's so much more. Dustin, I think you used this word when we recap the Tulane game, intentionality. It just it, it, it looked like the offense had a plan. Like last year, you would see a big play here and there. The offense was reasonably good for a not great offense last year, running the ball. But you just you weren't entirely sure what they were trying to do and just – it seems now like Dana Holgerson and Clayton Toon seem to be on the same page, of, you know, what they want to do. It's it's very clear. I think it's it's looking a lot like his West Virginia offenses in terms of, you know, the run game is very much a part of it. Kyle Porter, you know, his numbers won't I think jump off the page at you, but he's been very much the workhorse for U of H this year, a guy that we've seen out of the backfield a little bit. He had a really nice catch and run for a touchdown uh, against Naval uh, Naval Academy on Saturday to kind of salt that one away. And, and just a lot of, you know, the run to set up the pass, a very vertical offense, using some of those air raid concepts in terms of, you know, spreading the field and making opposing defenses, you know, respect the three, four and five wide sets, but doing a lot of running out of it. I, I think Dana likes to make the joke pretty often that he officially lost his membership card in, you know, in the air raid coaches just because he likes running the ball too much. And I think, you know, you could probably say something similar for uh, Heupel at UCF. I, I think what those guys like to do isn't dramatically dissimilar. I think maybe Dana is a little less fond of using the extreme tempo that, that UCF uses, but you're going to see a lot of deep shots. You're going to see a lot of U of H feeding the ball to Kyle Porter. And if he's healthy for this one, because he largely missed the BYU game and missed last week entirely, Mulba Carr, another running back who, the staff redshirted in 2019 just and and he had a I think I remember last year he had a great first half against UCF I, th- I think he did things against UCF's run defense last year that not too many teams did in 2019 against Randy Shannon's defense there so a lot of deep balls a healthy dose of Marquez Stevenson but also guys like Dustin said Trayvon Bradley Tank Dell Jeremy Singleton Christian Trahan 
the tight end and maybe you know, a little bit of Kyle Porter. I think Kyle Porter is averaging about one big game-changing catch per game so far this season. I, I think really for Houston, it's just been it's been coming out of the starters blocks because the first quarters have been some degree of bad all three games so far. And, you know, I think solving that might be the difference between Houston winning or losing on Saturday. Yeah, the only thing I wanted to add to that in terms of uh, Dana Holderson getting his offense going was just seeing the offensive line actually start to form this year. And that was why last year it didn't feel like we were actually were getting to see Dana Holgerson coach this offense because the offensive line was so beset with injuries was, you know, starting true freshmen and walk ons and just you know, all kinds of crazy stuff due to just the insane number of injuries that Houston had in that unit. So it, it, it's felt like this year finding actually, you know, it felt like last year it was Dana Holgerson coaching the offense with one hand behind his back. And now he actually has an offensive line that I think is still figuring some things out in terms of run blocking, but in terms of, you know, holding a pocket for Clayton tune, it's a pretty night and day difference between last year to this year and I think that's been the thing that's allowed Daniel Holgerson to finally actually start using some of these playmakers on offense you guys you mentioned the running game there I I was gonna ask about mobile car because obviously UCF fans remember him from last year's game as you said like literally just trucking some guys at his size but I don't I mean as Kyle Porter I mean he's been good but has he been uh, almost like a revelation a little bit with Carr kind of sidelined due to, to injury or whatnot has, you know, in the way that Porter has played, I know he got some substantial playing time last year, but just watching him early this year, has he been uh, more impressive than expected? Because that's, that's, that's the feeling I get from just watching him play. Yeah, it certainly feels like Kyle Porter's a little bit maybe looser, just moving easier. Uh, I don't know that he had some major injuries last year, but I think was just kind of not really at 100%, was just a little banged up all year. And just you heard already before the season started, Dana Holgerson, the coaching staff, just raving about how much better he was moving and just how much you know more comfortable he looked in the offense uh, as opposed to last year. So, you know, I know this is a coaching staff that ideally would like to have two or three guys that are kind of rotating uh, the carries, obviously, the last couple games, uh, that's been Kyle Porter taking a uh, a heavier workload than usual because of mobile car being out and not really uh, being healthy enough to play the last couple games. Obviously, Cougar fans will be hoping uh, to see him a little more ready to go on Saturday. And Dana Holgerson has been very withholding of specifics uh, in terms of player injuries, but talked about expecting to be healthier uh, than any game than the last couple of games uh, heading into the UCF game. So certainly Cougar fans are hoping that means that uh, mobile car is going to be healthy enough to get some, uh, to get some reps because we know what a difference maker that he can be. Um, but yeah, to get to your point, yes, absolutely. Kyle Porter has been, this feels like the Kyle Porter that, that Houston has been kind of waiting for ever since, you know, we got him as a transfer and kind of knew the, uh, the talent that he had. And, you know, what kind of Sam mentioned the, uh, the, 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 uh, yeah, the catch and run that he had in this past game as well. So that's something that he has not necessarily taken full advantage of in the past. Um, but, you know, I kind of, as we mentioned, as Houston's been a little bit, you know, maybe better at pass protection than run blocking right now, wouldn't be surprised to see the coaching staff not only utilize them on the ground, but also try to find them on some of these short passes uh, sometimes as well. All right. So what do you guys have as the over under in terms of the time of game we're going to have on Saturday? Because ah. I wanted to point a couple things out here. All right. Uh, Houston right now is uh, is 28th in the, in the in the country, or excuse me, 70th in the country in first downs on offense. But the defense, I think this is the big concern right now for the Cougars. 94th in the country in team pass efficiency defense, 64th in passing yards allowed, uh, and this is on top of a uh, on top of a team that is, by the way, 14th in passing offense. UCF pretty much similar in terms. We're going to see a lot of passing against some questionable pass defenses today, or uh, or on Saturday. It, 
that has to be to why is Houston having trouble in the secondary when, like you guys have said, they they have an elite run defense right now. I think it's that unit was probably the biggest week. I mean, other than the offensive line, which obviously had its own mini injury crisis last year, I, I would say the Cougar secondary was the unit that probably struggled the most last year. And just, I think we liked Demarion Williams. I think we still like Demarion Williams, uh, the Cougars' number one cornerback. He was the staff's first big recruiting coup. He was ready to sign with SMU and at the very last possible moment before the spring 2019 semester signed with U of H and, and Doug Belk and has been the Cougars number one corner ever since. So I, I think we both feel reasonably confident about Demarion Williams, but you know, I think figuring out the other position positions in that secondary was, is a bit of a question. And I think to the staff's credit, they completely turned over that position group. They brought in Marcus Jones, who's also a great return guy from Troy, who'd been a freshman All-American on some really good Troy teams there in the Sun Belt. Kelvin Clemens from the junior college ranks, although he's been he's been hurt this year. Art Green, who is a JUCO All-American at Hutch. And uh, and uh, Tava Moniki from Oak State. Hassan Hippolyte from Colorado. I could go on and on. The staff pretty much retooled entirely the secondary. And you know I think you're getting some growing pains from guys like Jones seeing his first action in a couple of years. And, and I think it also hurt the Cougars that they faced Zach Wilson and BYU's just awesome passing offense without Jones that game. And just guys trying to figure out who's the corner opposite to Marion Williams, trying to figure out the the back end, the safeties minus Deontay Anderson, who is by far the most experienced defensive back on this Cougar roster, former top 100 recruit out of high school. And so I think it's just been trying to figure out who the best guys are life without Deontay Anderson and also uh, Garrison Vaughn, another guy who played a bunch last year who got hurt against Tulane, figuring out the right combination of guys. And just, you, unfortunately you have to kind of grow with these guys as they get division one reps in Jones case, shaking off the rust of sitting out a full year. In the case of guys like art green and Jace Rogers, guys who come in with good Juco resumes, division one games, a whole different animal. And you got to kind of, you know, sink or swim and see, can these guys handle going up against you know division one receivers? And in the case of most of the teams on UHS schedule, really good division one receivers, certainly what they're going to be facing you know, against UCF on Saturday is going to represent really good, really fast opposing receivers, guys who they probably weren't seeing week in week out when they were playing Juco ball. And I think getting Deontay Anderson back, you know, the open question that is will be a big deal for U of H on Saturday but I think even even then, I think this is going to be a shootout. I think this is going to be a, be a game that features a lot of passing yards. I, I, as much as I would love to see it happen, I don't see I don't see U of H holding UCF to any kind of season lows in the passing game. I, I think to your over under, I, I think any any over under that uh, is less than four hours is just absolutely wrong. There's going to be a <laughs> lot of a lot of throwing the ball around the yard on Saturday at TDECU Stadium. Both. Both teams that like to pass, both teams that like to throw the deep ball. I think, Jeff, when we had you on your interview and for our show and you were talking about how much UCF likes the deep ball, I think I involuntarily cringed because that's something the Cougar secondaries really struggle with this year. Even in the Navy game, to single out the you know one or two things I was sour on from that game was that Dalen Morris and the Navy offense, which, you know, not exactly a passing juggernaut, although Morris did do a good job, you know, I think guiding them with his arm to a win over Tulane, just insane comeback there earlier this year. If Navy's kind of gashing you in the pass offense, I think 
that should probably raise some alarm bells. And yeah, Cougar run defense, as good as any as I've seen in four or five years, Cougar secondary will just very nicely say work in progress. <laughs> as, as a person who's going to be in attendance on Saturday, uh, boy, it makes me cringe to say to, to hear that I'm going to have to sit through another four hour college football game. Because we've not, already done that. Not to mention the penalties too, right, Murphy? At least it's not a thousand degrees with ninety percent humidity like it That's is seven true. months a year in Houston, and I'm I'm sure you're part of Florida as well. That's true. That's a factual. That's a factual statement. Uh, yeah, Jeff, you're right. That was something I was going to bring up. Another way that th- that these two teams are sort of like the you know dual Spider-Man meme pointing at each other are not just with the secondary is kind of being permissive, but just the the sloppy play penalty wise. Uh, UCF has, you know, has uh, the most penalties per game in the conference. Houston second most. Uh, Houston has the most penalty yards per game in conference. UCF second most. Uh, for UCF, the issue has been for most of the year, uh, false starts on offense, although they've cleaned that up recently. And then defense, just sort of bad post-snap, after-the-play personal fouls. What has been the issue with Houston and, and all of the fouls they're picking up? What, what, what can be done to clean it up? Yeah, I think Houston's been kind of all over the place with penalties. I think every penalty, just about every penalty that there's a rule for, I think Houston has uh, gotten flagged for at least once this season. Uh, during the the BYU game, you, you saw a lot of uh, just kind of some more after the play stuff. Um, you had uh, Kyle Porter decided to uh, to headbutt a player after a play. Uh, Patrick Paul, one of the offensive linemen for Houston, picked up a uh, you know kind of just silly personal foul as well. And then you know getting into uh, into this past week against Navy, it just felt like some more kind of procedural stuff. So, I mean, I, I, some of that I'm willing to, to chalk up to it taking so long for Houston to uh, to play a game, not getting a game in until uh, till a week into October, as you mentioned. So, it, it felt like it was, a, it was a trending a little bit in the right direction uh, in the, the Navy game. And, you know, Daniel Holgerson has been saying for, for basically since game one that, oh, you know, game three, game four, game five is when you kind of figure out where, you know, who your team is. So I know Daniel Holgerson, not uh, happy. Obviously, no coach is happy to be, you know, top one of the top 10 most penalized teams in the country, like both of these teams are right now. Um, but, uh, you know, Daniel Holgerson has been talking a big game about cleaning that stuff up. And like I said, it felt like we saw maybe a little bit of a, of a faint in the correct direction uh, in the Navy game. So certainly the Cougar fans uh, watching will be hoping to not see another game of, you know, 10 plus penalties and 100 plus yards, which has kind of been the par for the course so far. Yeah, I mean, we've seen we've seen that, too, at least here. And, and, and like Murph said, you know, UCF has cleaned them up as well, especially the <clears throat> gosh, what was it? The ECU game, there were seven false starts on the on the first in the first quarter, four of them before they even took a snap. I mean, it was it was it was atrocious. But uh, but it, <laughs> well, we may see quite a few penalties, we might see quite a few, <laughs> quite a bit of passing, quite a lot of points. Um, last question for you guys, because I know you got to go. Um, if you could just quickly give us an update on how Houston's entire athletic department right now is handling the COVID-19 situation, because, you know, we're seeing, uh, not just, you know, from smaller schools around the American, we're seeing some, uh, some schools cut sports. We saw Cincinnati, um, cut men's soccer. We saw ECU cut several sports, including their swimming and diving program, which is one of the best in the country. How has Houston's athletic department weathered this storm so far? I think you saw the usual salary cuts, uh, Dana Holgerson and Kelvin Sampson. And I, I believe maybe the athletic director did two deaths of it. Most prominently, Dana Holgerson and Kelvin Sampson uh, both took pay cuts. I think U of H had some, you know, layoff, some layoffs in the athletic department staff. I think, you know, the usual 
creative media people and it sucks like it's it's something that's going going on around college right now but it's kind of expected you kind of knew that something like this would happen i know in terms of like cutting sports i don't know if the situation is that drastic yet i think something that dustin and i have kind of talked about and looked at long term is just that you know dana holgerson has a pretty sweet deal to coach at u of h and a good amount of that is private money If, if i had to guess i don't have the figures right in front of me but the majority of that is private money his his state of texas salary is drastically less than he is actually making as a coach and that's something kind of in the long term you know watch and see like okay you know do the you know, do the people who are providing that private money if they start to feel the squeeze you know what's what's the domino effect of that going to be i mean like no place has been insulated from covid and the after effects of it but you know a lot a lot of hospitality in the houston area obviously can't run for it tillman fertita current rockets owner has has splashed a lot of cash on cougar athletics and his businesses certainly aren't doing great right now and in the current climate so i don't think there's anything in the short term future in terms of sports getting cut right now but obviously you're seeing you're seeing the layoffs here that you see you know i think everywhere and yeah, a lot, a lot of uncertainty right now. I think there's nowhere that's not true, and I, I would guess the same here. I don't think anything drastic is on the horizon, but if there was something drastic on the horizon, they would probably make sure someone like me didn't know about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, isn't that the case with all of us, right? I mean, I, I think, I mean, that's that's the thing that I always say that I always tell everybody about. You know, these two schools is they're they're really two sides of the same coin. Major metropolitan universities and big markets, and you know, and have kind of had had bumps and uh, and and some troughs as well. But um, you know, at the very least, uh, you know, both UCF and Houston seem to be weathering COVID quite well, at least better than a, several schools have been in the. American to this point, and we can and, just say Memphis. We're thirty minutes, and we, we can we can just uh, <laughs> we can just, say, we can just say Memphis. That's, yeah, that's fine. All right, we'll, we'll throw Memphis, in. but um, but that's good because you know at least it keeps the competition between these two schools actually quite strong, especially in those other sports that we enjoy. I know Lopez isn't here, but I mean he's but we know all about Houston and UCF on the on the softball diamond, uh, and of course in baseball at times. So um, here's to hoping that Houston can keep things going and. Uh, and that we can all get through this as well as we can. All right. Kickoff is uh, on Halloween uh, between UCF and Houston at TDECU Stadium on ESPN Plus at 2 p.m. Sam Rasenfoss, Dustin Rensink from the Scott and Holman podcast. Real quick, guys, where can UCF fans follow you? Yeah, we are. Uh, our, our primary social media of choice is, uh, is the Twitter. We're, we're big uh, active Twitter users, so you can follow us at SH podcast and we've got the pun in there so it's it's podcast p-a-w-d-c-a-s-t so sh podcast give us a follow on twitter we tend to uh generally follow back uh most uh reasonable aac uh people we enjoy uh, uh talking it up with everybody um so be sure to give us a follow over there and then uh, in the next 24 hours or so we'll have our preview episode up uh so anywhere where you get your podcasts if you search scott one podcast you want to hear our preview episode to hear some more about the u of h ucf game uh, we would love that as well all right should be fun and by the way before we go possibility i'm hearing rumors about ucf breaking out the space uniforms for the trip to houston for it would be the first road trip ever first time it's done on the road i don't know i don't know if it's going to happen murph it's are you thinking it might happen 
It sounds like it will. So yeah. All right. All right. Let's do, so so there you go. You get you guys get the extra third jersey from us this time around. It should be fun. Um, we need to come up with a, a name for this for this rivalry between UCF and Houston. By the way, it's got to be something space related. I feel like this, this this space game. I feel like is it almost is too easy, but I think it's a free spot waiting to be taken ah, by someone. And and, and, frank, and frankly, that. I, I, well, you know, it definitely should be. You know, considering Houston and you know your school's area in terms of uh, what you know what the two areas have contributed to the uh, the American um, space exploration. I think someone came up with some something on a, a Star with the Star Wars game or something like that. I don't know. The Star last War, time, yes, the Star Wars. Other, I believe someone suggested that. So I like that. I like that option. Mm-hmm. That's oh, pretty good. That's got to be it. I like that one. All right, Sam, Dustin, thanks again. We'll talk to you guys soon. All right, enjoy the game. Hey, thanks for having us on. Always good to talk to you, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thanks to Dustin and Sam for uh, their time. You can also listen to their podcast. I hopped on with them uh, to preview the game. So if you want to get the Word on the Houston side of things, of course, like they mentioned. Make sure you follow the Scott and Holman podcast. All right, gentlemen, here's the number I was waiting to give you. All right. Total has gone over in five of UCF's last six games. However, the Knights uh, are one and seven against the spread in their last eight games against conference opponents. So basically what you're saying is if they're if they don't make the spread here, they're probably going to lose this game. Yeah. I mean well, two and a half is the number, right? So yeah. that has me a little bit worried. That has me a little bit worried. Now, Eric, you've been taking a look at this matchup. What does UCF have to do against Houston? Well, I think number 1 is keep an eye on the young their star receiver Marcus Stevenson, who might mm-hmm. to me right now you could argue in the league that him and Marlon Williams are the two best wideouts. And you know who agrees, who's looking forward to a matchup, who's going to be covering Marquis Stevenson? Houston head coach Dana Hogerson actually has an idea. He thinks he knows who's going to be trying to take out his top receiver, known as Speedy. I think we got a pretty good idea of how Central Florida is going to do it. They got a young man by the name of Aaron Robinson, who's their nickelback, who's, you know, a uh, Alabama transfer, great player. You know, they he shadowed him last year. Uh, so, you know, and, and it wasn't one of Speedy's better games. Uh, so, you know, it's I think he's Speedy's pretty motivated. Uh, and, and he's worked hard on just being an all-around receiver for the last year. So he's, he's excited about this matchup. And I'm excited about this matchup because I think Speedy's improved in a lot of different ways. And we're, we're going to try to give him the, get him the ball as much as we possibly can. And, yes, the quarterback can check things based on what defenses are. But at the end of the day, that's our job to identify that and put those guys in position to be successful. All right. That's Dana Hogerson talking about his star receiver, Speedy Marquez Stevenson. Uh, what do you think, guys? Talking about him expecting to be matched up with Aaron Robinson, who was matched up to him last year and actually slowed him down at the game here at UCF that the Knights won. What do you think about that matchup? I think that's a key matchup because that's their best playmaker. And Robinson, I would say, is right now their best maybe cover guy. It's a key matchup, certainly, but I think that one of the interesting things is I would not be surprised to see Randy Shannon throw a couple different people at him. Don't you, Murph? Yeah, I think so, too. You know, uh, you know we, obviously, you know, the guys from the, the podcast you know, gave us some options about who Clayton Toon is going to target. But obviously everybody knows that public enemy number one for UCF's defense in this game out wide is Marquez Stevenson. And, you know, to Aaron Robinson's credit, kept Stevenson to two catches on ten, on uh, for 10 yards last time in the game here at the, uh, at the ballot house. Uh, but Houston got, got the, got the ball in his hands as a runner a couple times. They could do that as well too on end rounds. They'll get, they will get the ball on him into his hands on 
screens and crossers and deep shots, you know, option routes, everything, because he is just so explosive. It's, you know, anybody wants to go back and watch the two touchdowns he scored against Navy, it just goes to show you how how much of a game breaker he is. Um, and you're probably right, Jeff, that I could see this game being a game where Aaron Robinson once again moves out of his normal nickel spot to go travel with go travel with Stevenson out wide onto the boundary, and then there's always going to be safe. There's always going to have to be safety help, uh, whether it be Collier or, or Grant, uh, McMillan or, or, or Gainis. There's going to be safety help over the top as well. And then you kind of just you kind of just have have Clayton Tune beat you with someone else. Um, it sounds pretty simple to me. You know what I'd be interested to see? Like we saw quite a bit of Devonte Brown uh, against Tulane. Devonte is a big kid. He's six two one eighty. He's a freshman out of Plantation down in Broward. I would like to see Devonte Brown get a couple of shots at him because as good as Stevenson is, he's six feet tall, one ninety. Um, that matchup could favor a guy like Devontae because you know that Marquez has, has been looking at film of Aaron just as much as Aaron's been looking at film of Marquette, Marquez, right? So um, that I'd be really um, interested to watch to see if if maybe they mix him up with that matchup there. Um, as far as uh, Houston's defense, yeah, sure, elite elite run defense to be to be sure, but boy, do they give up a lot in the passing game. And if you're Dylan Gabriel, you got to be you got to be licking your chops at that Houston secondary, which is already underhanded and, uh, or shorthanded, I should say, and and really rebuilding at this point. Don't you think, Murph? Well, as we talked about with the guys, uh, Houston's strength is in their front. Uh, their front, their 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 run defense is really strong. Uh, and, and, you know, UCF still, that's not going to that's not gonna force UCF to shy away from their normal game plan of running the ball. But, yeah, I think you're going you're gonna to see a little less conservative game plan in this game, either by necessity or really just out of, you know, the way they planned it, uh, that, you know, conservative than you saw against Tulane, where they were almost forced to run the ball more often than maybe they would have liked, um, because that's what, that's what the matchup dictated in this game, whether it's because you're behind on the scoreboard against a high powered offense, or you just want to take advantage of a pretty weak secondary weak relative to the front of Houston. Yeah. You're going to see Dylan Gabriel air it out a lot. Uh, might he throw for five touchdowns again? I, I certainly would not bet against it. I, I think this is a game where you're going to see another 1,400 yards of offense, <laughs> and I still, I still think the yeah. over, I still think the over under of A2 is still too low. We are talking about a UCF team that was in a game two weeks ago against Memphis that that hit, that hit 99, and then last week against Tulane, who does not have the most explosive offense in the conference by far. The over the, the total hit 85, even though UCF basically took the fourth quarter off to run the clock out. Uh, so you're saying that 82, you're 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 hitting that uh, what was that that gif that's like that's bait. <laughs> that, that, yeah, right. That, that that's bait. Yeah, that's uh, a great line from uh, Mad Max. Mad that, Max well, Thunderdome. Yeah. Uh, not it wasn't Thunderdome. I know. Story it was, Road, but, that's you know, right. Whatever. Uh, anyway, yes, anyway. Uh, for me, I think the, I think the total in this game is probably in the nineties. Uh, I think both teams hit 40, uh, and I don't really have any like second guesses on that. It's going to be a long game. Like we talked about, there's gonna be a lot of penalties. There's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of points. Yeah. We're going to be here for another four and a half hours. So settle in. 
Hopefully, people have good internet connection to get ESPN Plus. Okay. Uh, and, and we'll see what happens. Thank you well, for the segue right there, okay, well, Eric Lopez, because this game is going to be it's going to be UCF's first on ESPN Plus, and this is not ESPN three, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, public service announcement: you're going to have if you want to subscribe to ESPN Plus, you can get the bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. I think right. I think that's like thirteen bucks, which is actually a pretty good deal. Um, I'm a parent, so Disney Plus is a lifesaver at times. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, you got to pay the extra. This is not ESPN three, which comes with your cable package more often than not. This is ESPN Plus, which you have to pay for additional. And yeah, you know, I, I highly encourage everybody to listen to uh, Mark Daniels on the Beat of Sports. His uh, they ha- they put put up three podcasts a day from his um, daily show, and one of them was talking about um, you know where the world of sports streaming is going and he breaks it down pretty good so definitely listen to mark on that but uh but yeah there's it's it's i have a roku box which means i can watch that game on my big old tv in the house um and uh shout out to l2 productions right those guys are going to be producing that game our friends from uh from our our work with the american but uh, but eric this is this is the wave of the future isn't it yeah, I mean, that's where everything's going is subscription, whether it be sports or entertainment. I mean, they're, the networks are now p- coming up with their own sites to put on original programming. Uh, Brian knows about this in the movie industry now. I mean, you people are purchasing movies. How much are movies going for? If you wanted to order a movie right now on at home, on demand, Merv, how much, I mean, what what's the average price that you or people are purchasing uh, to watch a movie at home right now? So if you if there was a movie that was supposed to be in theaters that got moved on demand and it was it was like just released uh, if you ordered on demand it's about twenty dollars twenty dollars uh, and and the only reason I bring that up is it's it's amusing to me how people are like man I, I don't want to pay the five what is it five depending on where you know you brought up the options that 599 you have five ninety nine for ESPN plus right people are like oh my god I can't believe five ninety nine they don't realize and I wrote about this on blackandgobanneret.com in detail. Uh, like, for example, these games would have normally been airing on CBS Sports Network or probably ESPN News. If you have CBS Sports Network, which I do, you actually have to pay to have that channel. I think people forget that. Either you have to pay it if you have cable, you have to pay an extra package, sports package, to get CBS Sports Network. Or, like you, Jeff, if you want it, CBS Sports Network, you don't just get it for free, right? You've got to kind of pay your own way even if you're cutting the cord through yeah. various whatever. well i mean i have youtube tv right so i have to get the extra right. i i mean i have to get the extra sports pack that has cbs sports network right in order to so see i think it's it's amusing to me that people are like are competing like we just had a huge ufc 254 preliminary uh pay-per-view which is one of the reasons why the Tulane game was a two o'clock kick because they had preliminary fights prior People are paying 40, 50 bucks to watch that fight. Earlier this year, the Oklahoma home opener against Missouri State, Missouri State people, they made the Sooner fans pay basically 50 bucks to watch it on pay-per-view. Um, and then, so I just kind of find it amusing that people are like mad about 599 when probably when you're watching a sport, when you're going to a sporting event or even watch it at home, odds are you're probably spending more money on what you're drinking or eating than you are for actually subscribing to ESPN Plus, which is the home. I mean, that's the point. You're, everybody is going to every, this format uh, in, in form of sports and entertainment. It's not just yeah. a sports thing. It's entertainment. So uh, I, I have ESPN Plus. I've watched it. They have the library for the 30 for 30. I think you're going to see this is going to be the home for the American Conference basketball. 
not just basketball, but all the other sports as well. All the Olympic sports, which is huge, huge exposure for them. It's huge. Now you can just go one place. So, like, if Murph wants to watch UCF baseball play at Wichita State, instead of trying to figure out, hey, where can I go watch it on the Wichita State? Do I have to pay the Wichita site? Or do I got to listen to Mark on the radio? Now he can listen to Mark on the radio and watch the game on ESPN+. (laughs) So it's a lot easier to go there and it's a good deal and i know people don't think it's a good deal and if you don't want to and if you want to disagree with me which hey it's not the first person to disagree that's cool if you want to disagree with jeff that's fine take as i wrote in the article in about a year ago it was in march i think it was march of 2019 right jeff we had michael smith of the sports business journal they are the best when it comes to covering sports uh media and sports television and all this business as far as contracts with tv and things they endorsed this deal for the league this is a good deal. And yeah. and he mentioned you know, and the Big Twelve has got a piece of the action on ESPN Plus. And I think it's only a matter of time before you see the other leagues join in too. I, I think I would not surprise me in about ten to twenty years if all of, of a, not over ninety percent of ESPN content is on ESPN Plus. Uh, just because I think that's the direction this is going. Like I think the days of ESPN three are over. I think some of those ESPN channels like ESPN U and News might turn into ESPN Plus. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised, and, and some would argue, and I think you're on this camp, Jeff, that 10, 20 years from now, cable television might be kind of like what VCRs are now, right? Kind of maybe. Well, I, I don't know if I would go that far, but I do know for a fact that, you know, the cable, it, you know, obviously the, the, the networks are going to pay a premium to try and get live sporting events, like your broadcast networks, your ABC, CBS, NBC, because they know how valuable that is. And actually, uh, properties like ESPN Plus, have made those properties even more valuable. Like, look at how uh, look at what happened with uh, UCF being on ABC, right? Like now, it's it matters that much more to get onto that network. Um, I think it's great for the Olympic sports to get that exposure and get that ESPN brand behind them, rather than having to rely on uh, and get that get those production values too, rather than having to rely on. Um, you know, some sometimes some rather you know. It, it, I mean, you know the, how the production quality varies from school to school in the American. Some of those some of those streams are pretty good. Others are not. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that this is where things are going to be going. The, if you wanted an American network, you've got it on ESPN+. And by the way, it was the American that had that idea initially when they signed that billion-dollar media deal with ESPN uh, and who followed in, in their footsteps by doing the same thing. It was the Big 12, right? So because the Big 12 yep. now, I uh, you know, sort of separate site on ESPN plus um uh, is a is a sort of a, is based on the idea of the Americans doing it so um so yeah this is where it's headed um to be honest with you I you know like like you said I don't you know 599 not that much to pay for you know for one month you can cancel it at any time too and you know I'm not and and I'm not just saying this because I like UCF but um but you know in, in the market that's actually a fairly reasonable price um, like Murph, you talked about how it was what twenty bucks to see a movie that got moved over to streaming that was going to go out into that that was going to be in the theaters. Like I don't know, take your pick. Like um, didn't they do that with Tenet? I think. I know they no, did. they did not. They did oh, they that did. with Trolls. Remember Trolls? Trolls, Trolls World Tour, Tour, yeah, and Mulan. The Trolls, the Trolls World Tour. They did it with a couple other films. They did not do that with Tenet. The Tenet they released in theaters. I would know because I was in one. Ah. And uh, it didn't do well, and so theater movies are kind of on the on the back burner again yeah. for a while. But, right, but you said twenty bucks, right? 
How much would you yes, spend? How, how much would you spend to take your significant other and or your kids to the movies? I mean, if you let's say let's say you're going with only one other person, only one other person, you would like conservatively guess it's like ten dollars for a ticket. Conservatively, ten dollars for a ticket plus food plus parking plus the traffic of getting there plus just like watching it with other people who might be disruptive to you and, and, and not forty minutes of preview trailers. Well, the trailers are great. Don't knock the trailers. The trailers are fantastic. Yeah, some of them are um, okay. Some of them are not. Whatever. Anyway, yes, the, the, the value here of watching a movie at home and paying $20 up front uh, far exceeds, you know, paying a cheaper ticket price, but then dealing with everything else that comes along with the theater experience, which is just not convenient uh, in these times. So anyway, we're yeah, that's my thing. about. We're far afield, but you're absolutely right. So And re- re- real quick. Again, people, you know, oh, well, we're giving up the the exposure on ESPN News and CBS Sports Network. And I wrote about this again on BlackEagleBenerate.com. You can check this out. The largest audience for a UCF sporting event that has aired on ESPN News ever was 171,000 against Houston 2015, which was an infamous game because that was the George O'Leary last game as head coach of UCF. Houston was ranked top 10, top 15 at the time. That was that Tom Herman team that was really good. They went to the Peach Bowl and beat Florida State. 171,000 ESPN News. You're not – it's not a huge audience. They, they don't draw big nut television. And that's a reason why, if you've noticed, what ESPN has done with ESPN News, that's kind of the channel they go to. Hey, if a game's going long, we'll f- start a game there or maybe we'll flip a game that's ending there like they did with the UCF Tulane game this past Saturday, ironically <laughs> enough. That's what it's used for. That's it. Remember, remember when stuff. ESPN News was actually ESPN News? Like it was, yeah, it was like twenty four. Yeah. It was, it was like he, old headline news, but for sports, just twenty four seven Sports Center. But it, look, like I said, if you're a UCF fan, you bet you're going to get used to it because you're going to all the UCF sporting events. Sports are going to be here, home and away, uh, and that's going to be good, and that's going to be big for the, all the programs at UCF because they're going to be able. To, it's a lot better to recruit when you tell your kid, hey, you could watch us now on ESPN Plus instead of trying to explain to them, hey, you go to this site and then go here, and then for this game you got to go here and there. It's Instead of going in ten different directions, you're going in one direction, and I think that's a win for everybody on the field, and, and it's I think it's a win-win for everybody. All right, ESPN Plus, 2 p.m. By the way, last thing, Murph, are we going to see the space jerseys again? I, 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 I assume so. We have not seen, like, uh, full, full uh, approval there. Obviously, people who are on Twitter – might have seen that that was leaks on Monday morning and John Heisler's sort of recap of the UCF's win over Tulane. It was leaked in that story that that UCF will be wearing uh, their space jerseys again in Houston to sort of pay homage to the to the space uh, uh, you know program there. And all of a sudden, then about an hour later, that sentence was edited from the article and it vanished, ceased to be, and we really haven't heard any confirmation. However. Uh, you know, on Thursday is usually the day we find out what combinations of jersey UCF will be wearing in their next game. So uh, as you're probably already listening to this, you probably already know what jersey UCF is wearing. I would assume they are still going to go with their space jerseys. I don't think that I don't think that got put in there by accident. I just <laughs> don't think they wanted the word to be out there like that so openly on a Monday. I think they wanted to sort of hold it back, and I think he kind of spilled the beans accidentally. I, I, I think it's probably going to happen, which would be fun. That's not, it's cute. It's it's cool. And like Heifel said after the game on Saturday against Tulane, um, that helps the kids like it. They they get they, it's one thing that 
that really pumps them up to be, you know, like the old Deion Sanders saying, you know, look good, play good. And it helps in recruiting, too, because, you know, these kids want to, like, look good in the jersey they're wearing and the kids like the uniforms and the recruits like the uniforms, too. So I think the the more you wear them, although it might become, like, less special if you wear them too much, the more you wear them, uh, you know, the the more uh, just it's just it's just a fun thing to have. It's a cool thing to have. Look, look good, feel good, feel good, play good. That's your reason to go tune in on ESPN plus to, you know, exactly watch the unis. By the way, make sure you tune in early because I'll give you this quick stat to keep in mind about the game. Houston this year has been outscored 38 to 13 in the first quarter. So give that term you see fast in the first quarter. That could be the key in the game right there. Mm. All right. Well, we'll be watching 2 o'clock on Saturday. Stick around. We get back. We'll talk some hoops. We got some hoops coming. Yes, we're about a month away. We actually hear about basketball from basketball people when we return. (laughs) This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Jeff, Eric, and Brian with you here on this uh, last Wednesday in October uh, when we're recording this, Wednesday, October 28th, which means we are one month exactly away from UCF men's basketball getting underway uh, with a home game against Oklahoma. Three non-conference games on the schedule. We still have yet to hear what the conference schedule is, although we know it will be 20 games, 10 and 10. Uh, we don't know who, uh, or we don't know what the dates are for that, but hopefully that's coming soon. Uh, men's basketball, by the way, picked to finish eighth in the American uh, preseason poll. Of course, last year UCF finished 16 and 14, 7 and 11 in the American, uh, tied for eighth with uh, South Florida. Um, didn't get the chance to face the Bulls in a rubber match in the uh, in the conference tournament in in, uh, D- in the DFW because of uh, the COVID cancellation, but. Uh, uh, Murph, any surprise? Do you think UCF was picked a little low there or a little high? What'd you think? I do a little bit. I mean, I look at this roster and yeah, I mean, losing Colin Smith and, and having to replace him and his role and his experience is now going to be the biggest question for this team, uh, as a unit. But I, I think this team has enough talent, you know, with, with the pieces they had, the pieces they brought in with CJ Walker and Sean Mobley and Darius Perry. And then obviously your returners, uh, with uh, Darren Green Jr. and, and Dre Fuller, uh, Tony Johnson. I think there's enough talent here to finish more than eighth. I don't look at this, though, as a slight, uh, really, because, po- one, preseason polls mean nothing in every sport. And, two, this is a really good conference, and it's going to continue to be a really good conference. There's at least three or four teams in this conference that have a legitimate argument to be top 25 preseason ranked in the AP. Uh, it, is that, it is that good. So, um, and, and so, you know, being eighth, people will be upset about it. Don't worry about it. It doesn't mean anything. It just means you're in a really good conference. You're going to be facing a lot of good competition, which means you got a lot of chances to get some pretty quality wins. Uh, Houston was picked first uh, with nine first place votes. Memphis second with two, followed by SMU, Cincy, South Florida, Tulsa, Wichita State, and then UCF with ECU, Temple, and Tulane bringing up the rear. Caleb Mills of Houston picked to be the uh, preseason player of the year. Uh, no UCF players on the preseason first or second team. Just a little bit more bulletin board material. Meanwhile, on the women's side, Eric Lopez, we heard from Coach Abe this week for the first time. Brittany Smith was named preseason all-conference first team. Certainly well-deserved. Um, UCF picked to finish second in the conference. Remember, UConn's gone now, so UCF... Uh, is was picked to finish second behind South Florida, who 
Uh, should be back after a rash of injuries last year, Eric Lopez. Uh, now, Eric, with KK Wright now gone, um, the, the center of gravity has certainly changed on this team uh, heading into this year. So what do we hear from Coach Abe uh, uh, this, uh, earlier today about uh, where, what she expects to see from her team this season? Well, yeah, she mentioned the fact that I was with no KK. This year, this team's really – she expects to be the strength be inside and the scoring to come inside with her low po- uh, post players. They're very deep inside, led by Brittany Smith, but not just her. they got a ton of players. And she even mentioned this here on Wednesday, this in her fifth season, that this team is going to be a little different than last year. Obviously, they depended on the backcourt. This year, it's all about the front court. Most players are phenomenally experienced. I mean, we got – everybody back, you know, and, and have tons of playing experience in Brittany, obviously, Mossini, Jenea, Destiny. Um, and then we added a freshman. So our post players are really strong where last year was our guard play, right? Well, obviously Brit- Brittany and Moss were really phenomenal last year, but I think our post players are our strength. So now we got to, you know, work on finding some numbers from our guards. I mean, diamond battles can step up and do that. Cortez Saunders can step up and do that. And then we're looking for, you know, who's going to be the next one up that can, uh, you know, step up and put some points up at the guard spot. So I think this year is going to be, you know, a lot of our points are going to be coming from our post. Um, and then as we get going, you know, I think the, our guards will kind of fill in and step in. And because I think that, you know, in practice, we've been working on Brittany getting doubled, Moss getting doubled and how we're going to handle those kind of things. Um, and then people just stepping up and being competent shots. So, to answer your question, I think our strength is our post play this year. That was uh, Coach Abe there from the media availability. We'll hear from her in a moment as well. But, Jeff, I want your thoughts on this. I mean, we know this roster. I mean, this team, and you mentioned South Florida and UCF, and I think it's so fascinating. People go with South Florida and UCF. You know, South Florida, we know Jose Fernandez very well. We both have covered him. Phenomenal coach. They live on the perimeter. They depend on the three-point shooting. They go up tempo. You know, with Abe and UCF, I think it's going to be the contrast this year. You know, she mentioned, you know, she hopes Diamond Battles and others step up in the backcourt. But this strength of this team is the front court. They got a ton of bodies inside that they feel they could score. And that's going to be the strength of this team. And that's what's so fascinating to me is the inside game and led by Brittany, who was honored by being first team all conference. Yeah. And it's not just Brittany. I think also you got to look at a couple of other players, I think, that really do stand out. You know, this year, Masni Kaba is going to be a senior. I think she's going to be key. And that one-two punch, I think, was so effective. As long as the two of them can stay healthy. I, I think that Diamond Battles really is the X factor here. She had, uh, you know, she, I think she's grown so much in her first two years. Uh, she's heading into her junior year. She's a local kid from Winter Haven. Um, I, I, I'm really excited to see what she does because I thought that her defending was uh, uh, last year was really unsung. Um, you know, KK had all the all the headlines, and rightfully so. I mean, KK is one of the best guards that we've ever had at UCF. But you know, Diamond was not to be messed with in terms of being that second guard out there on the, on the perimeter. Uh, I think that she's grown a lot in terms of running the offense. And you know, when you have those two big players to throw to throw the ball down to, I think that's going to be a lot of fun um, to watch. And, and don't throw out you know the possibility of UCF getting a little bit of uh, getting some open looks on the outside. Um, I, I, I suppose now now she didn't play last year, but I, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what Becca Ripley can do. Uh she's a redshirt junior, transferred over, didn't play last year. Um obviously a really good uh outside shooter. She transferred over actually from the University of Miami. 
um, and, uh, and 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 a couple other players too that we should see that we should see a little bit more of. Um, I'm really excited to see Brianna Frazier from Jersey City. Uh, she's going to be she's a redshirt freshman. I wonder if she'll get some playing time and see what she can do. There's a lot of a uh, lot of intrigue on this roster. This uh, this coaching staff has been together the entire time. Which uh, it, which goes to show you like how much they just enjoy coaching with each other. I think in particular. So, no question. Um, so yeah, I'm. I, this is just a really intriguing year well, for and, and, UCLA and you have basketball. A night, right, right. And I think the thing is, you kind of know the roster. You kind of have an idea. There are some questions. Obviously, KK. You know, we've. I've already kind of documented it on Black and Gold Banneret on the UCF 250 series. I think she's the greatest women's basketball player in program history. But there's very few questions about the roster in comparison to the men. And I think one of the reasons the men was ranked so low, there's still a lot of questions about the roster as far as, for example, is a C.J. Walker going to get cleared? Is he going to be eligible and play and so forth? Obviously, Colin Smith. So I think from the outside, there's more questions about the men's roster, which is why they're ranked lower. The women's, you kind of have a better idea. I think the big question is going to be who takes over the offense with K.K. out. Do they have enough? You know, is it going to be a balanced scoring? Is the scoring going to be inside? You mentioned Jeff the perimeter, and what's so fascinating is this is such a unique year. Obviously, with everything with the pandemic, both the men and the women are going to be playing twenty conference games and playing the conference tournament in Texas, up from sixteen games. I asked Coach Abe about that. Uh, I wondered about your thoughts. The league going to twenty games, of course, no UConn, but also the conference tournament going to Texas. Your thoughts on some of the tweaks there, as far as the league's concerned? Well, the league, the league, we tweaked that uh, for this year and this year only, just because we were so concerned about games. Um, you know, it's really hard to get games right now. We didn't know what we weren't. We were the, the league and the head coaches. We'd have had many, 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 many conversations about what to do, and we we just talked about that, like. This year we're going to have to because we can control our conference and our schedule. And, you know, if we miss a game, we can reschedule. But out of conference, if you lose a game, you're probably not going to be able to reschedule that. So, you know, we talked about that a lot and that we're going to um, play 20 this year and go back to 16, you know, uh, after this year, hopefully. You know, hopefully this COVID is going to go away. So we just really we just really wanted our players to have an opportunity to play and have as many games possible to play this year. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, the tournament in Texas, I think it's going to be fun having it. Uh, it's going to be a lot of excitement and things going on with the men's teams there too. So we'll be able to watch our men's team and see, it's going to be like a festival of basketball. I think it's going to be really fun there. That was Coach Abe there from the Media Availability Wednesday. Very interesting answer there. Um, and Murph, I want to talk, because we and I talked about this last week when Coach Dawkins talked about the 20-game schedule. And you're very for it. You know, playing everybody twice, but clearly, and I mentioned this last week, and Coach Abe, you just heard her say it, she thinks it's just a one-year thing. She actually wants to go back to 16 games instead of 20, and I think, again, the reasons are a couple reasons. Number one, the net, as they call it now, has replaced the RPI. I think some teams, some coaches worry about, hey... The bottom teams are going to hurt our, our net ratings, if you will, not get enough net ratings in our league. The other thing is, I think they want the flexibility of the non-conference schedule. But it's interesting to me that, that in both the men and the women here, Murph, doesn't seem like the 20-game conference schedule is here to stay long-term. Yeah, and that's, you know, we'll see what happens, you know, in 2021, 22. You know, my, my, my total point of view from it as, you know, as an advocate for the 20-game uh, double round robin, even, you know, balanced scheduling is that 
for the AAC men's side specifically, this conference is good enough with like six or seven, you know, really good teams that could rank in the top, you know, uh, you know, 75 in the net, top, you know, 80 in the net, that you have a lot of good games that can help your that can help your rating. And, you know, I understand that people want to have more room to schedule better non-conference games. Um, but UCF has shown that they can do that this year uh, already with what they've got on their schedule uh, on the men's side with FSU, Michigan, and Oklahoma. And, you know, you're only, you know, you would like to aspire to, to put together a, a good non-conference schedule, a competitive non-conference schedule, but you still have to do that. You still, you still have to go out and have people agree to play you. Um, and so that's not, I don't think that's as easy as it sounds. Um, but yeah, I, I think for this year, because of where the American is on the men's side, how good I, I think it can be, I really like the setup. Yeah, I think you're right. I, that's the part that I think gets overlooked now is, yeah, the conference schedule is larger, but the reason why is because it may be because of necessity. Yeah, sure, UCF can get some non-conference you know, matchups here and there on the men's side and on the women's side too, but what about the other teams in the league? Like how many non-conference games is Tulsa going to get? Or Temple, right? Well, I mean, Temple probably get some of their big five games, I think, but um, it, it's going to vary, I think, from place to place, and I would not be surprised if there are a few teams that maybe only played their conference schedule, right? Well, I think, uh, by the way, I think Murph makes an interesting point and an interesting case, which is the men's side, top 75 teams in the net, because that's the most important criteria. When we Once we get back to uh, some closeness as far as the normal season, whether it be the following season, et cetera, there's more depth on the men's league right now than there is on the women's, Jeff. Let's be honest. There's a lot of – this is an interesting year for the women's now with no more UConn in the league, okay, because let's be honest – one of the big benefits of UConn being in the league, yeah, you would lose to them once or twice, but they helped you from a from an RPI slash now net ratings, which the women's are going to as well. The bottom of the league in the women have got to step up, and they've struggled. And I wonder if some of this is Coach Abe is thinking, wait a minute, you know, as far as we're concerned, we've been one of the top teams in the league. South Florida is one of the top teams in the league, maybe Cincinnati, et cetera, you know. Not to call out teams, but there's been some teams at the bottom that's kind of held us back. So why do I want to play them twice? I think that's probably uh, a more legitimate argument to be made that maybe the you know for the 16 game schedule over 20 maybe is on the women's side as opposed to the men that at least it, it appeared they would have more quality at the bottom. Your thoughts on that? Well, uh, the, well, the, the problem with that is you're still rolling the dice, right? Because you don't know whether or not you're going to play the good teams twice and the bad teams only once. Right, I mean it, it, that—that's the part that I, it, you know, I'm sure if Coach Abe was here, she'd say, "Well, there's a chance that I might not." Right? I mean, but you know, I, it, we've had that happen a couple times where you know UCF played UConn only once, and then they would play them twice, and then you know how much did that affect? Um, they, I, I just think that you know when you balance out the schedule, it makes these teams easier to evaluate against um, one another. Now, I, I sympathize with what Coach Abe is saying about. Um, about those teams, you know, screwing up the net for some of the teams up at the top. But, you know, in, if that's the case. Well, especially in her case, as you know, Jeff, she schedules non-conference games. Oh, yeah. She ain't ducking people. And that helps them. They've helped them in the RPI standpoint. So you could argue that her formula, the way she's done it here, has been working because they made the tournament and they've been in the mix for the tournament even when they, UConn has won the league. And, and the thing is, though, like if they're playing – you know, if you're playing some of those teams that are bad anyway, twice out of the year, I mean, you're only playing what four? There's four teams that you're only playing once in a 16 game slate. At least when we had 12 teams in the league. Well, so. I think the, the the bottom line is the league's got to step up in the bottom because yeah, 
you know, that's not that's the teams. The, that, that's on the teams at the bottom. That's on those schools, right? Right. I mean, that, right? Because how many times, Jeff, did we have done sh- shows the last two years where, like, man, they can't afford to lose this game. They can't. You know, it seemed. You know, it was a lot. You know what I mean? And I think that's where I think Coach Jay would argue about the sixteen game is. Boy, if you're playing these teams, you're in a no-win situation too many times. You're going to get clipped more times than not, right? And so it's unique. It's interesting. I, I'm with you guys. I like the 20, but I understand both sides of it. And I think it, you know, I look forward to those conversations moving forward down the road once we kind of get to that point. But right now we know this. It'll be 20 games, and I just hope we get to see them on the court and compete, which, yeah. hey, the conference title is going to be on the line this year. We don't, you know, it's wide and open. And there's going to be a tournament, and it's going to be – a coincidental tournament too, uh, with I think the women's championship is the same day as the first day of the the men's tournament. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. I've got Brian Murphy's name written all over. Oh That's yeah, right there. You know it, uh, absolutely. Basketball Boy. Palooza at Dickey's Arena, baby. Look, I'm there. There's nothing. There's really nothing. There's 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 very few things in sports that are better than like four basketball games in a single day from a single setting. I, mm. As a man who used to go to a lot of Pac-10 tournaments uh, back in the day, those are a hell of a lot of fun. So I'll take all the basketball you can give me in a single day. Please, please. There's, I love it. There's nothing better than that. I wish, actually, that the men's and the women's team uh, tournaments were actually happening at the same exact time. Like, they were going on across. Do you see what Conference okay. USA does? Whoa, whoa, whoa wait. Hey, yeah, no, I'm on. serious. Have you seen, uh, listen. Did you see listen. what Conference USA does? Yeah, but, I mean, like, listen. Like with as great as Murph is and his wheels, I mean that he can move as fast as anybody. Not even Murph can go back and forth between a women's and a men's game. Come on, that's a not. Come on, you got to give me a little a breathing room yeah, there, it was, somewhere. It was, Maybe an hour difference. If we, if we were playing this in inside a dome stadium somewhere and you had two courts going on at the same time, you could. Yeah, like they did, like Conference <laughs> USA. There's at the at the at the Star in Frisco, Texas, Dallas Cowboys practice facility. They have two courts going on at the same time. It's amazing. It's like the Disney, it's like the Disney bubble. It's like the ESPN. Oh, it's so good. NBA bubble. Um, by the way, that's my own segue to mention a couple other basketball notes. Okay. Uh, remember, you guys, if you listened to last week's show, show two forty five, me and Eric talked a lot about uh what Coach Dawkins said when he met with the media uh last Monday. That was the nineteenth, and a couple of things he talked about. We have some updates on. One thing was you heard him mention the off the the non-conference games that UCF has against Michigan, Florida State, and Oklahoma. Well, we talked about the Oklahoma date. That's November 28th. It's a month from when we're recording this now. We now also have a date for the FSU game in Tallahassee. That will be played on December 19th. Um, so Oklahoma on the 20th of November, uh, Florida State on the December 19th in Tallahassee. And then secondly, you uh, might also remember that Coach Dawkins talked about wanting to add a multi-team event to their schedule. UCF was in a multi-team event that was scheduled to be played in Connecticut uh, in the Mohegan Sun, uh, and they dropped out of that because ESPN, the ESPN campus over the, uh, the wide world of sports over at Disney, uh, was going to host eight, eight early season multi-team events uh, in, in that, in that, uh, that campus. Uh, one thing about that, though, they've all been canceled. Mm. Uh because apparently ESPN and the participating schools in those eight team events, uh, they couldn't all match up on the stringent, on the stringency of the testing protocols that each school would have to go through uh, to meet ESPN's standards. Couldn't ESPN's figure standards, out the bubble. They could not. They could not. They could not set it up to where 
each school can meet ESPN's standards for testing protocols. And so all of those events that UCF was looking to get into uh, for their multi-team event, they're going to have to find something else or nothing at all. Certainly, if you've been following that this week, you've seen reports and whispers that there are some coaches who believe we will not have any non-conference basketball this season. It'll be only conference only, which would really suck for UCF, considering, again, Michigan, Oklahoma, Florida State. Um, but it, it, you just don't know. And that, and that might end up being the road we go down. And right now, I think UCF is kind of scrambling with without that multi without that multi team event available. Uh, what do they do with their non conference slate? What do you think is going to happen? Like, uh, do you think that they'll be able to pull something together here, or or is it going to be like football, where everyone's you know thought that there would be a in season scramble for non conference games, and then all of a sudden it turned out that it just didn't materialize. Yeah, I think that's going to be kind of it. Is like they, they want they're going to hold on to the non conference as long as they can until they can't. A couple of the, tur- the tournaments that were scheduled to take place here at Disney are, are are still on the slate to be played elsewhere. I think like Indianapolis is now being viewed as the site for a couple of the tournaments. But again, I don't think UCF is going to travel to those. Uh, and so yeah, right now it's all tentative. Everything's tentative. Life is tentative. We're day we're day to day as as it, as it, as it were. Um, but I think right now the UCF hopes to get those non-conference games in, but it just seems more and more a possibility that we won't have any of it. Uh, and that would be too bad, uh, because it's some really attractive matchups that we talked about. Do you think that maybe they, if that happens, that they roll those matchups forward into, uh, upcoming seasons? Well, at least for the UCF Michigan game, that is already a home and home mm-hmm. that is scheduled to be played here at UCF next season. Uh, I, I would correct myself from last week. The Oklahoma game that's scheduled to be played here on the November 28th, that is the second half of what was a home-and-home series in Oklahoma. I didn't think it was, but I've been corrected on that. So uh, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if they'll make that game up because that, that would be the end of the series. They would certainly have the Michigan game next year here, assuming conditions warrant. But would they make up the Michigan game in Michigan? I, I don't know. The, the Florida State game is a one-off. Um, it's just it's too early to tell, but just by going from other reports um, from those insiders, you know, in the sport, uh, it seems like there are more and more coaches who believe we will end up kind of where we were in football, which is conference only. Mm. All right. Well, still got time to figure all that out. And, but, you know, that's where that giant, you know, not or that giant in-conference schedule comes into play because now you have less slots to fill up. So, uh, again, we'll keep it. We'll keep looking at that, and if there's any updates, we will pass them uh, along. Last thing we want to talk about before we go: we talked about how we're recording this on October 28th, which means 20 years ago, to the day, this happened. Quickly to Jerry O'Neill. Jerry, Mark, I'm going to stand right behind the goalpost here. We'll get the quick early look. Alabama has called the timeout. I talked to Javier Borlegi just as I passed the kicking net. He's been working on his kicking game, just focusing on that. Had a big old smile. I says, you might as well go win this thing for us. He says, that's what I plan to do. He's got all the confidence in the world. He's been here before in big game opportunities, not with the game on his foot like this. But, you know, again, we've seen UCF maybe in its kicking game problems in helping to uh, try to score this first big win. It's on his toe tonight uh, after this timeout with only six seconds to go. He's the only one on the field. 
Javier Borlegi is 3 for 3 today. He's hit from 26, 28, and 27 yards. For the season, he is 13 of 17. His longest, 48. This will be 37 yards. It's the right hash. May the trivia question answer 20 years from now be Mike Hedge snapped it. Jimmy Frizzell held it. And Javier Borlegi kicked it. Here we go. Six seconds to play. 37 yards for UCF. And here we go. Andrew Smith. Snap is down. Kicks on the way. Kick is up. Kick is good. Yes! That's right, Javier Borlegi's field goal put UCF over Alabama in Tuscaloosa. Lots happened since that day, but uh, one thing we know for sure is that UCF is still 1-0 all-time against Alabama, so you can't really take that away from me. But um, uh, I guess we'll wrap up with this, guys. Do you guys remember that game specifically, and what do you remember about it? Eric Lopez, I'll start with you. I remember that it was not shown on television live. You know, it's funny. We just spent the last segment talking about ESPN Plus and, oh, people don't want to defy Doc. We didn't even have that option. Right. Uh, I, I, I think if maybe it was available on, like, Alabama pay-per-view, I think. I don't know. I just remember listening to Mark, Gary, and Jerry on the radio for the whole game because that was a game in 2000. That was a game that was circled. That, that was the year – uh Alabama had a lot of hype that was the Mike DeBose who was the head coach at that time not Nick Saban for some of you out there but Alabama the year before had gotten to the Orange Bowl with Sean Alexander who was a great NFL player they lost to a Michigan team led by some guy named Tom Brady I don't know if you guys remember that guy whatever happened Brady? to him I don't know that's a great question Murph if you ever find out what Tom Brady did let us know but um they lost to them in the Orange Bowl but they were a lot of hype and uh, they didn't have the year they did, but still it was Alabama. You know, at that time, UCF was an independent, was searching for that marquee game win in a power five. They've come so close in the past. There was a Georgia controversial game against Georgia in 99 where, what was it, a, non, uh, a non-pass interference they're calling? No, it was, it was, it was a pass offensive pass interference right, call that's on right. UCF. It was terrible. Yeah. Screw job. The ultimate screw job. Among others, they've had other close calls. We're not going to get into all that. So it was Alabama, and that was a back-and-forth game. Up and down, and uh, Ryan Schneider with that incredible drive leading him there. Tyson Hinshaw at the whiteout. Uh, they had great returners. They had a guy named Asante Samuels, now at the UCF Hall of Fame, has been a great career in the NFL. I mean, and they pulled it out. Javier Borlegi, and to me, still the most famous, the most biggest kick in the history of the program by Javier Borlegi. You heard the call there, 39 yarder. Uh, that was tremendous. I'm actually writing about this now on the blackandgobanneret.com. There's Jeff, you posted the last drive of the game, uh, which I don't think people have seen in 20 years unless you, you know, they did air the game. I remember this. They aired the game the next day or next couple couple days later on Sunshine Network at the time. It's now Sun Sports. So uh, because people are like in demand, like, man, we want to see this game. So there's the drive there. and But I, I will post 
uh, Mark Daniels on his show, The Beat of Sports, which obviously airs weekdays 9 to 12 on 96.9 The Game in Orlando and obviously is online. He had Jerry O'Neill and Tyson Henshaw on the show. So I'm going to post uh, also that because I think it was a fantastic conversation about that game 20 years later. And other UCF uh, guy people involved in that game also are uh, are going to be I'm going to post about them because they've had reactions on this day. But what a moment. That's a moment. I mean, that was the first time we we're like, man, we can actually get beat one of these power teams for a change. Because at that time you were like, yeah, we're just always going to lose. And uh, it was a great moment. It's uh, I love those jerseys, by the way, since we talked about those jerseys. I love those jerseys. Can we bring back those for a retro look one, one of these days? I don't know. Just pitching that out there. But uh, it was fun. It was fun to listen to that and watch that. And uh, a, a top 10 game of all time. Murph, Murph, do you remember that game? Not one second of it, Jeffrey. <laughs> I was a junior in high school who didn't even know UCF existed. I was too busy thinking about going to Florida State for college. Uh, no, I don't. Thank you. You're welcome. I remember the results. I remember that because, again, like you were saying, it's not like the, the game ended up on, on, uh, college football, on college football scoreboard on ESPN at the time uh, because of the you know janky pay-per-view well, uh, right, right. arrangements back then. By, by the way, I wonder how much they were charging for that in Alabama. But, um, you know, and back then too. But uh, I remember the results thinking, wow, UCF went, went into Bama and beat Bama. And then I remember thinking, man, Bama must be no good this year. <laughs> this was a rough year for Bama. But um, yeah, I, I never, I, I, I fully confess, I never understood the true significance of that game until I got here to UCF. The following year and I realized like how much it really meant because I didn't realize like you know the trials and tribulations like you have said Eric about you know all those previous games against power opponent power conference opponents and UCF coming up just short due to a gazillion different reasons um many of whom we've we've uh right we, the Auburn we've game chronicled here right? Auburn Auburn well, in Auburn, 98 talked about that at length 98, yeah, yeah which that. is unbelievably heartbreaking. You talked about the Georgia game. There games against Georgia Tech. Believe it or not, against Georgia O'Leary. Um, Earlier that year. It was the season opener. Yeah, and, uh, and just just a phenomenal stretch of bad luck. Well, UCF finally broke through, and they broke through against one of the real one of the true blue bloods, even, even at that time, even though Alabama was struggling pre-Saban uh, and post-Gene Stalling, still one of the true, truly great programs in college football. And it really did put – it was a victory that put UCF squarely on the map in college football, um, in major college football, um, and, uh, and I think certainly solidified their status as a, as a Division well, 1A school, you know, having, having only jumped up from Division 1AA just a few years prior to that. No doubt. And I think it gave UCF fans belief that, you know what, we can't contend compete with these guys we could compete with compete with some of the top programs in division one football because that was a bit you know we didn't know i mean psychologically it's funny how things have changed in 20 years you know now everybody expects to win every game and it's a it's a it's the world's ending to when we lose or you know whatever you know back then we didn't know if we can win a game like that because you mentioned i mean the, even the Culpepper years which Culpepper was the one that i thought put the program on the map they played nebraska 97 so close let them mm -hmm. at the half couldn't finish the job but they were close games like that. The Auburn, Mississippi, South Carolina, you know. And we were just wondering, is how do they are they ever gonna get over the hump? It was almost like the 
the base, the base, uh, the football, like a Chicago Cubs, Boston Red Sox thing, where as soon, you know, and you get in these games and you wondered, man, are you, are we, are, what's going to happen wrong? What's going to be negative? What's, what's going to, what's going to go wrong? That's going to cost us this. When's, game? when's the other shoe going to drop? <laughs> Correct. And that game, it didn't like, and, and, and it's funny that poor leggy kick, man, it's the biggest kick ever. Cause I mean, that kick, I remember listening to it on the radio and I remember, and you heard, you played the clip Mark's call. And 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 it's weird. It does. It feels sounds weird to say this, but I was listening to it at home and the radio. I felt like that kick t- took like ten minutes. It didn't obviously, but it felt like it ten minutes. Like my God, did he make it? Did he make it? And then he and then Mark obviously goes berserk and Gary and, and it was just a and you could sense the emotion for them because they were obviously involved with it. Every they they were all part of all those tough losses and those trips back and forth and um, it was it's it's the highlight of the Mike Kruzek era by far. And, uh, yeah. you know, it was just tremendous, tremendous moment. It, it was a great game. And, and I know it's out on YouTube and stuff. I recommend you watch it. It's a it's a great moment. Ryan Schneider's defining moment. What he was a freshman playing yeah. at Alabama homecoming at Alabama. He was tremendous. Tyson Hinshaw and company it was it was a huge, huge moment there for that program and for that for that at that time frame. By the way, thanks to Drew Gluchoff for. Finding that and for finding that clip of that last drive and getting it up for us, um, that was a, a huge, huge find, and, and we owe Drew a lot of thanks to that because w- I think a lot of people thought that maybe that game could have been lost to time because of how just bizarre the arrangement was. But you know, now we finally got it, and we and 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 to watch that drive, I highly encourage you. Just like you were saying, Eric. Hop on to blackandgoldbanneret.com, watch that final drive, and look at the composure that Ryan had, and and you see you know, what was really happening, you know, with, with this, you know, big kid from plantation who could really throw the football and is now the head coach at uh, Coco High School and having incredible success there too. So um, shout out to Ryan, shout out to uh, Tyson Hinshaw, Mike Kruzek, Jimmy Frizzell, who also had it. Actually, he had a, a catch that would have set up the field goal, except for the fact that there was a holding penalty on Alabama Then you, and UCF took the penalty rather than the catch. So they wiped out poor Jimmy's catch. But uh, but uh, it still it still gives you it still gives me goosebumps actually watching it all this time later um, and seeing you know what you know how that all went down and, and just when you think of how far UCF has come in two decades uh, from that that afternoon in Tuscaloosa man what a ride it's been hopefully we'll continue to ride it will continue to ride that wave going forward and hope you hopefully you will continue to ride the wave with us here on BlackAndGoldBanneret.com where you can find. All the latest UCF news across all sports, part of the SB Nation Network. You can follow us at UCF underscore Banneret on Twitter and Facebook.com slash Black and Gold Banneret. Don't forget to follow us all individually. I'm at Jeff underscore Sharon. Eric is at Eric Lopez Elo. Brian is at Spokes underscore Murphy. And with that, let us bid you farewell for show number 246 here on the Black and Gold Banneret podcast. For all of us at Black and Gold Banneret, enjoy the week. Go nice to charge on. Houston game, 2 p.m. ESPN+. Plus. Follow us on Twitter. We'll be breaking that down as it happens. Until then, enjoy the week.